0: You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is The Third Temple with Walter Feit. We're going to talk about the Third Temple. And I think this is a very timely subject because there is a lot of confusion regarding this issue. And I get so many questions regarding the building and the construction of the third temple and the whole theology associated with that. And so I thought it timely to talk about this issue in some detail. Let's start off with relationships with the Jewish people. And I want to say right from the beginning that this is not in any way designed or meant to be against the Jews as a people. It is a pure theological question which we want to address this evening. So uh, I believe that salvation is open to all, to every tribe and nation and tongue and people. And it has nothing to do with personal sentiments, purely theological. The Jewish leaders meet Pope Francis and to commemorate the decree repudiating the idea that the Jews killed Jesus. So this is a commemoration of that great decree that the Jews were not responsible for the death of Jesus. Half a century after the Second Vatican Council published its groundbreaking declaration on interfaith relations, Nostra etate, among other things, exonerating Jews as a whole for Christ's death, a delegation of Jewish leaders met on Thursday with Pope Francis to mark the event and deliver a response to the landmark document. The nine page response titled Between Jerusalem and Rome Reflections on 50 years of Nostra Aetate Stresses common ground with Catholicism As well as the distinctions of Judaism It is signed by the chief rabbinate of Israel The conference of European rabbis And the rabbinical council of America So this is quite a high profile delegation that met the Pope And it's interesting that the event, again, took place exactly 50 years after a decree. So you have this idea of a jubilee involved in this visit. And uh, to work according to dates and timetables and set uh, periods like this is a Kabbalistic idea. In his meeting with the rabbis, Francis praised the response particularly for affirmation that religions must use moral behavior and religious education, not war, coercion, or social pressure to influence and inspire. This is most important. May the Eternal One bless and enlighten our cooperation so that together we can accept and carry out better his plans, Francis said before ending his speech. With a Shana Tova Greeting for the upcoming Jewish New Year So you have this interesting interplay Between these two religious systems Now here's an interesting statement they made During this visit In their statement The rabbis also called upon the church To join us in deepening our combat Against our generation's new barbarism. Namely, the radical offshoots of Islam Which endanger our global society And does not spare the very numerous moderate Muslims Radical Islam threatens world peace in general And the Christian and Jewish communities in particular The response states We call on all people of goodwill to join forces to fight this evil So it is quite clear that uh, as far as they are concerned, the problem is not with moderate Islam. The problem lies with radical Islam. And we need to keep this thought in our mind as we continue our discussion. So there have been numerous visits by popes to Jerusalem, and this uh, liaison between the two religions has been ongoing for quite some time, and since Vatican II, of course, it has blossomed into its present state. And here we see Pope Francis at the Wailing Wall during his recent visit, and there's a plan to go again. Now, the theology that I want to address tonight is the theology of Israel as a nation, as it is associated with the redemptive plan, the millennium, the coming of Christ, the events surrounding the so-called coming of the Antichrist, and all the theological issues associated with that kind of thinking. And where does it come from? And why is there such a mega connection between Christianity and Judaism today? So I first want to discuss what the Reformed position was regarding the Jewish question. So I'm going back to the Reformers. And I thought I'd uh, quote a source which is a modern source and comes with uh, the history of the Reformed position. The writer of this article is Dr. Cornelis Venema. He's President, pr- Professor of Doctrinal Studies at Mid-America Reformed Seminary and Associate Professor of Redeemer, URC, and Dyer. is uh, also the author of many books, including The Promise of the Future. And I want him to tell us what the Reformed position was. The Church and Israel, the issue throughout the history of the Christian Church The question of Israel's place within God's redemptive purposes has been of special importance. In modern history, with the emergence of dispensationalism, as a popular eschatological viewpoint and the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, the theological questions of God's intention for Israel has become even more pressing. So... He puts it right out there. And then he states, After the Holocaust, the Nazi attempt to exterminate the Jews throughout Europe during World War II, the issue of the relation between church and Israel has also been affected anew by the sad reality of anti-Semitism. "...which some allege belongs to any Christian theology that insists upon one way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, whether for Jews or Gentiles." So This is a very important point. Whenever you say something on a theological basis, it is construed by people as being anti-Semitic. But we're not talking anti-Semitism. We're talking theological issues." We're talking biblical realities. And we need to understand these concepts lest we be confused by all the winds of doctrine that we have in the world out there. Then he discusses premillennial dispensationalism, which seems to be uh, the hub of what evangelical Christianity espouses these days. God's special purpose for Israel Although premillennial dispensationalism is a relatively new viewpoint in the history of Christian theology, its position on God's special purpose for Israel has shaped, even dominated, recent debates amongst evangelical Christians on the relationship between the church and Israel. So dispensationalism has a very prominent place in Christianity today. In classic dispensationalism, God has two distinct peoples. An earthly people, Israel, and a heavenly people, the church. Now, we've had lectures on this issue before, but I want to look at it from the standpoint of Protestantism. According to dispensationalism, God administers the course of the history of redemption by means of seven Successive dispensations or redemptive economies During each dispensation God tests human beings By a distinct revelation of his will Among these seven dispensations The three most important are the dispensations of the law So this teaches that the Jews were under the law The dispensation of the gospel, or the dispensation of grace, which teaches that Christianity is no longer subject to the law, but is now under grace. And the dispensation of the kingdom. And here it applies to the Jewish nation, because dispensationalism teaches that the kingdom that will be set up, the millennial kingdom, is associated with the Jews. Because the Christians, according to this theology, will have been raptured away and will have no part in this kingdom of a thousand years. So this is dispensational Christianity, which is the powerhouse of what drives the union between Christianity and Judaism in the evangelical world and the Jewish state. So now he comes to the point, what is the traditional reformed view? And this is very important. What is the traditional reformed view? Contrary to dispensationalism's sharp demarcation between God's two peoples, Israel and the church, historic reformed theology insists on the unity of God's redemptive program throughout history. So the reformed position is there's no such thing as a dispensation. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The plan of salvation has always been the same. There is no difference in the way in which Adam and Eve were to be saved and the difference in which the Jew was to be saved or how we are to be saved. One plan of salvation saved by the blood of the Lamb. That was the reformed position. When Adam, the covenant head and representative of the human race, fell into sin, all human beings, as his posterity, became liable to condemnation and death. He quotes Romans. By virtue of Adam's sin and its implications for the entire human race, all people became subject to the curse of the law and heirs of a sinfully corrupt nature. That's the Reformed view. According to traditional reformed interpretation of Scripture, God initiated the covenant of grace after the fall in order to restore his chosen people to communion and fellowship with himself. While the covenant of grace is administered diversely throughout the course of history of redemption, it remains one in substance from the time of its formal ratification with Abraham until the coming of Christ and the fullness of time. All right, uh, well... That's the reformed position. And then he has this statement, extreme replacement theology. The final position on the issue of Israel and the church that requires comment is what we might term extreme replacement theology. While dispensationalists often insist that the traditional reformed affirmation of one people of God Comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, ease of reform of replacement theology. The reform view does not regard the gospel as replacing the older covenant economy with Israel, but rather fulfilling it. This is a very careful way of stating that uh, there's a fulfillment and not a replacement. But in actual fact, if you are in Christ, then you belong. To the Israel of God. So is there such a thing as extreme replacement theology? So conclusion. The diversity amongst these various positions on the issue issue of Israel and the church testifies to the importance of this issue. Does God have a separate purpose and redemptive program for Israel and the church? That's the question. Or does the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfill God's purpose to gather a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jews and Gentiles alike, into one worldwide family? When the Apostle Paul declared in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles, quoting Romans, he declares that there is one way of salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Yet he simultaneously affirms that this salvation does not displace or supersede God's redemptive purpose for the Jews, but rather fulfills it. Yes, true. But what is the condition according to the Scripture? Isn't the condition that they accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? So the Reformed position seems to be in juxtaposition to the position that Israel has a prominent place to play in the current events and in the redemptive process. But according to the reformed position, there's no such thing. You either accept Christ or you don't accept Christ. Here's another view. The Israel of God, quoting Galatians 6.16 by Michael Marlow, and uh, he quotes Galatians, But far be it from me to boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For neither circumcision is anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as many as shall walk by this rule, peace be upon them, and mercy upon the Israel of God. And he states, The proper interpretation and translation of the last phrase in Galatians 6.16 has become a matter of controversy in the past century or so. Formerly, it was not a matter of controversy. With few exceptions, the Israel of God was understood as the name for the church here. Reformed position. I just want to make sure that everybody understands what was the Reformed position. Here is a book, The Israel of God, Palmer Robertson on the Israel of God, the recognition of a distinctive people who are the recipients of God's redemptive blessings and yet who have a separate existence apart from the church of Jesus Christ creates insuperable theological problems. I think the man has a point. Jesus Christ, only one body, only one bride, one people that he claims as his own, which is the true Israel of God. This one people is made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So that's the reformed position. If you take your stand on the reformed position in this time in which we are lived, You are deemed an enemy of the established religious unity. And you are deemed anti-Zionist. And uh, who says anything like that? This is purely a theological issue. So how do we deal with this kind of thinking? And just think about this. According to dispensationalism, the promises of God are irrevocable. And they have to be fulfilled to the letter. In other words, the Jew becomes part of the kingdom people. The Christian becomes part of the bride that is raptured. And so what do you do with someone who is converted from Judaism to Christianity? Uh, That would include all the disciples. That would include all the early Christians. That would include every single Jew that has ever become a Christian. That would include even Paul. So what happens? Are they somehow split into two? One is associated with a literal kingdom and another one with a spiritual kingdom. How does this work? There are insurmountable problems with this theology. This theology does not reflect the biblical teaching, and this theology is not the Reformed position. Let's make sure. I want to be absolutely sure on this issue. Martin Luther, what did you have to say on Galatians 6.16? This comes from Luther's works as translated into English, and he's lecturing on Galatians, and he's saying, Upon the Israel of God, here Paul attacks the false apostles and the Jews, who boasted about their fathers, their election, the law, etc. And he quotes in Romans 9, 4-5. to It is as though he were saying the Israel of God are not the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, but those who, with Abraham, the believer, believe in the promises of God now disclosed in Christ, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. That's the reformed positions. Let's look at John Calvin on the same verse. Upon the Israel of God. This is an indirect ridicule of the vain boasting of the false apostles who vaunted of being the descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. There are two classes who bear this name. A pretended Israel which appears to be so in the sight of men and the Israel of God. Circumcision was a disguise before men, but regeneration is a truth before God. In a word, he gives the appellation of the Israel of God to those whom he formerly denominated the children of Abraham by faith. Galatians 3.29 And thus includes all believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, who were united into one church. So whether you were a Lutheran or whether you were a Calvinist, This was the Reformed position. And today, well, you get into trouble if you maintain this position. And uh, I myself have been on that side of uh, this divide. But uh, I want to make it quite clear that I'm not anti-Jewish. I wish every single Jew would believe as I believe just as Paul was on one side of the issue and changed to the other side of the issue, so I wish the same could happen today. So just to recap, where does this information or this new theological thinking come from? Well, it comes straight out of the Jesuit environment. Futurism, the idea that a future temple will be erected in a literal Israel, and that there will be a literal kingdom of the Jews down here, and that an Antichrist will come and rule for a literal three and a half years within that temple, defiling it, and then the kingdom of Christ will be set up here on earth with the Jews while the church is raptured and gone, from the scene is not a biblical idea it's not a reformed idea it is a counter-reformation theology conjured up by the Jesuits to destroy the idea of the Protestants that the Antichrist already reigned and that he reigned in Rome so it started off with Francisco Ribera and you can see the dates there 1537 to 1591 is when he lived And this is the time when the Reformation had spread its doctrines in the world, and this was part of the Counter-Reformation. So he was a Jesuit doctor of theology, born in Spain, who began writing a lengthy commentary in 1585 on the book of Revelation, and he published it around about 1590. So here, the day-year concept is thrown out that the Reformers used, and a literal Antichrist who rules for a literal three and a half years is introduced. And then you have Cardinal Bellarmine, who is also a Jesuit, and he has his work. Uh, one of the best known Jesuit apologists published a work between 1581 and 1593. And it's entitled Polemic Lectures Concerning the Disputed Points of the Christian Belief Against the Heretics of This Time. Referring, of course, to Protestants, in which he also denied the day year principle in prophecy and pushed the reign of the Antichrist into the future period of three and a half literal years. So, the theology that today seems to be gaining ground in the mainstream is not a biblical theology, it's not a Protestant theology, it's not a Reformed theology. It's a Jesuit theology. It's a counter-reformation theology. And we need to understand that. Because this reformation that is to take place, this counter-reformation, is actually designed to dethrone Protestantism and to dethrone the centrality of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther is the one who said, we must think of no other God than Christ. That God which speaks not out of Christ's mouth is not God. God in the Old Testament bound himself to the throne of grace. There was the place where he would hear, so long as the policy and government of Moses stood and flourished. In like manner, he will still hear no man or human creature, but only through Christ. As the number of the Jews ran to and fro, burning incense and offering here and there, and seeking God in various places, not regarding the tabernacle, so it goes now. We seek God everywhere, but not seeking Him in Christ. We find Him nowhere. So if a religious system denies Jesus Christ as Messiah or denies Jesus Christ as God, then, according to the Reformed position, they have written themselves outside of that avenue of approach which God has laid down in the Bible, because no one comes to the Father except by Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. So it is a theological issue. Please don't misunderstand. It's not an uh, anti-organization or anti-nation situation. It is a theological issue. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. Now, I'm going to quote a rather controversial Adventist position, which is absolutely in harmony with what the Reformers believed. But today, it would probably be considered quite harsh. The blood of Christ... And of the disciples whom they had put to death was upon them in terrible judgment were they visited. Referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and all of those issues. Now remember that the papacy has exonerated the Jews as a whole from this whole situation revolving Jesus Christ, involving Jesus Christ. But here it says the opposite. The curse of God followed them. And they were a byword and a derision to the heathens and to the Christians. They were shunned, degraded, detested, as though the brand of Cain was upon them. Yet I saw that God marvelously preserved this people and had scattered them over the world, that they might be looked upon as especially visited by a curse from God. This sounds very harsh. I saw that God had forsaken the Jews as a nation. Yet there was a portion of them who would be enabled to tear away the veil from their hearts. Some will yet see that prophecy has been fulfilled concerning them. And they will receive Jesus as the Savior of the world. And see the great sin of their nation in rejecting Jesus and crucifying him. Individuals amongst the Jews will be converted. But as a nation, they are forever forsaken of God well that won't sit very well (laughs) with the modern establishment as a nation as a separate entity in the redemptive plan they will no longer play a part according to the source and according to the reformed position so this is a reformed position Second Corinthians eleven two says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. One husband. And we declare unto you glad tidings, we read in Acts 13 from verse 32, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my Son, this day I have begotten Thee. The issue is Jesus Christ. The issue is the centrality of Jesus Christ. Attached to it, you have all of these ball and chain theological issues where you try and get around the stone of stumbling. And we have to face it squarely. Is this a biblical issue? Where are we heading in the course of history? What was the purpose of Israel? What was their role? Let's ask the Bible. Isaiah 49 verse 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. That thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. They had to show the plan of salvation. It was in type. Encapsulated in their sanctuary service. They had to point to the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. They had to slaughter the lamb. They had to take this blood. And this was the blood of atonement. This is the plan of salvation. They didn't do it. They kept to their ritual. Their ritual became their salvation John 3 18 he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God it's as simple as that the issue is not whether whether someone is anti-semitic or pro-semitic the issue is what is the centrality of Jesus in all of this what is the centrality of of Jesus. Galatians four twenty eight. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. That's pretty clear. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them and mercy upon the Israel of God. So the reform position is so scriptural. You're either in Christ or you are not in Christ. Whether you are a Muslim, whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Hindu, whether you are whatever you are, if it excludes Christ according to the Scripture, then you are not on the path that God has chosen for man to be reconciled with the Godhood. It's a simple theological issue. Not a popular one, but a simple one. Here's another Adventist quote. The Old and the New Testament are inseparable. For both are the teachings of Christ, the doctrine of the Jews who accept only the Old Testament is not unto salvation. Since they reject the Savior whose life and ministry was the fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. Is that Biblical. Of course, it is. And the doctrine of those who discard the Old Testament is not unto salvation because it rejects that which is direct testimony of Christ. Skeptics begin with discounting upon the Old Testament, and it takes but one step to deny the validity of the New, and thus both are rejected, and you end up in a quagmire, in a soup that accommodates any wind. Of doctrine what is the historic view well let's go to Eusebius and he's a well he's a well-respected early Christian historian Eusebius's view of spiritual Israel then the spiritual seed of Abraham fled to Pella hmm. who fled to Pella was it the Jews no It was the Christians. They listened to the warning of Christ that when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, then flee. So he calls those that fled, the Christian, the spiritual seed of Abraham. And they fled to Pella on the other side of Jordan where they found a safe place of refuge and could serve their master and keep his Sabbath. That must be another blow to modern thinking because it underscores the fact that those early Christians also kept the Sabbath and they were regarded as the spiritual seed of Abraham. Now let's look at the Jewish position today regarding those who are endeavoring to reconstruct the temple and where will this theology lead us. Gershom Shalom, professor of Jewish mysticism, it's interesting, we should look at those words, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem until his death in 1992, wrote the following, Judaism in all its forms and manifestations has always maintained the concept of redemption as an event which takes place publicly. On the stage of history, And within the community. So it will happen visibly. It will be a spectacular event. It will usher in the millennium. There will be a temple. These issues will take place. There will be a reign of the Messiah with the Jews. It is an occurrence, it is an occurrence which takes place in the visible world and which cannot be conceived apart from a visible appearance. Hmm. Does he know what uh, the Christian view is? Well, yes, he does. In contrast, Christianity conceives of redemption as an event in the spiritual and unseen realm. An event which is reflected in the soul, in the private world of each individual, and which affects an inner transformation which need not correspond to anything outside. So clearly, they understand the difference. And my question is, how do you marry two totally opposed viewpoints into one hodgepodge? It's impossible. But it is being done, and with great effect. The Bible says in Luke seventeen twenty, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come he, Jesus, answered them and said the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. That's not what Gershom just said. He said it comes in the visible kingdom. You can switch your news channel on and watch it happening. The Bible says no the kingdom of God doesn't grow like that the kingdom of God is something that happens inside here where you are redeemed not from a physically uh, or a physical environment that is hostile to you you are redeemed from an internal environment that is hostile to you and that environment is called the sinful nature and Christ redeems you from sin so here we have two viewpoints Irreconcilable viewpoints Which today are married into one How far are they along? Before his death already The Temple Mount Faithful Have the cornerstone ready for the temple In addition the Temple Institute Has all the furniture and the priest- priestly garments prepared And he says the preeminent organization in Israel working for the building of the temple this temple institute uh, opined on the record saying that a Netanyahu government would be good news this was before 1980 that he said that for the prospect of the rebuilding of the temple in previous political campaigns Netanyahu incorporated into the platform of his Likud party that if he was elected prime minister, they would press for the opening of the Temple Mount for Jewish worship. So decades ago, this has already been in motion. Now let's have a look at current events. Here is the Jewish News Syndicate, and it reports that John Hagee, Christians United for Israel that uh, the two groups, the Jews and the Christians, form this this liaison, this working together uh, to further the aims of this literal kingdom uh, that is to come. And I want to remind you that this entire theology is based on a Jesuit theology and not a biblical theology. Neither is it a Reformed theology. Hage's spirited advocacy of the Jewish state has been a constant of his career. In 1981, his church hosted its inaugural Night to Honor Israel. So this has been coming a long way. An annual event held in San Antonio every year since that celebrates the Jewish state and stresses the importance of a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. As a mark of its great success, the 2017 dinner raised more than $2 million for Israel and Zionist charities and organization. Since its inception, the Night to Honor Israel has raised more than $100 million for Jewish charities and the Jewish state. In 2006, Hagi founded Christians United for Israel, Sufi. To give political expression to the voices of millions of devout Christians across America who support Israel. Supported as a state. So, whose theology is being supported? Is it a biblical theology or is it a Jesuit theology? The answer is it's a Jesuit theology that is being supported. People today want to... Ascribe all the evils in the world That are happening to the Jews No, that's just the front The real issue Is whose theology Is being supported and why Because the issue Is Jesus That is the issue That stumbling stone Will remain a stumbling stone Until the end of time So Celebrate Israel from July 23 to 24, 2018. That's just around the corner, isn't it? So we're going to see more and more hype developing as we progress in the direction of the conclusion of this theological mindset. So here they show Netanyahu and the Christians, together we stand with Israel's summit. It's going to take place. Things are going to happen. Let's have a look at the viewpoint from their perspective. Now, not the Reformed perspective, but the, the viewpoint from this modern perspective. The third temple. When will it be built? An article in ChristianProphecy.org. The Bible clearly teaches that a new temple The third temple will exist during the great tribulation I've read the Bible from cover to cover And have never ever read any such thing But it says here that the Bible clearly teaches it I don't know what Bible this is But it's certainly not the Bible That you can take off any shelf in the world The third temple will exist during the great tribulation the Bible said there was nothing here during the great, uh, at the end of time. It will, everything will be destroyed. Daniel refers to this temple when he says the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will enter it and stop the sacrifices in the middle of the tribulation. Again, this is not a biblical doctrine at all, because it makes the one who put an end to the sacrificial system who was Jesus Christ makes him the antichrist so it is a a gospel reversal the apostle paul mentions it when he declares that the man of lawlessness will profane the temple by entering it and declaring himself to be god quoting thessalonians the third temple is also mentioned in the book of revelation when john is told to uh, to measure it a symbolic way of telling him to assess its spiritual condition it is it's written with such Affirmation as though these were biblical facts and not one iota of it is true. Breaking Israel news. Third temple closer than ever as search begins for eligible Jewish priests. And then they quote Exodus and bring thou near unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel. And they may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, Eleazar, Itamar, and etc. So they're gathering them together. They have already bred the red heifer that is necessary for the ceremony of induction. So they have already been bred. The Temple Institute has initiated the second stage towards building the temple, compiling a list of Jewish priests who will be eligible to prepare the red heifer and serve in the temple. There it is, has been prepared. The Rabbi Richman, the international director for the Temple Institute, announced on Monday, the announcement coincides with the weekly Torah reading that describes the preparation of the red heifer. Okay. Okay. All the instruments for the new temple have already been constructed. The Temple Institute has called upon Israel's finest craftsmen and artisans and enlisted them in the historical task of recreating the sacred vessels. So you have the copper lever, it's already prepared, you have all the necessary uh, equipment for the transfer of the coals and uh, the incense. You have the table of showbread. You have uh, the menorah, which has already been constructed. And it stood in a museum waiting for the initiation of the new temple. And just before I came to this country, which is just two weeks ago, I first went to the United States, they had a major ceremony where they took the menorah out of its resting place, as it were, and marched it to the Wailing Wall, where it was to take its new position, because the temple was going to be initiated soon. So this is the current reality. The Ark of the Covenant has also been constructed. Here's another quote from an Adventist source. It has ever been the design of Satan to draw the minds of the people from Jesus to man and to destroy individual accountability. You see, this theology doesn't have individual accountability. It has group accountability. It's not the individual that is important. It is the nation as a whole that is part of the redemptive process. So you are saved by your genetic lineage, according to this theology. Satan failed in his design when he tempted the Son of God. He succeeded better as he came to fallen man. The doctrine of Christianity was corrupted. Popes and priests presumed to take an exalted position and taught the people to look to them to pardon their sins instead of looking to Christ for themselves. The Bible was kept from them in order to conceal the truths which would condemn them. And the same powerhouse is driving this new theology. Upon the foundation that Christ himself had laid, the apostles built the church of God. In the scriptures, the figure of the erection of a temple is frequently used to illustrate the building of the church. This is the reformed position. This is the official Advent position. Zechariah refers to Christ as the branch that should build the temple of the Lord. He speaks of the Gentiles as helping in the work. They that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. And Isaiah declares, the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls. Writing of the building of his temple, Peter says, To whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed even unto men, of men... But chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So clearly, salvation is an individual decision, not taking place on the visible stage of history for a particular nation. At this time. And it's amazing. Not only the Jews lay claim to this. Other nations lay claim to it as well. As though they were. Inheritors of the Jewish genetic profile. It doesn't exist. There is no such theology. The temple that is to be built. Is a spiritual temple. Consisting of living stones. People that have been redeemed. In Christ. Being built into the temple. In the quarry of the Jewish and the Gentile world, the apostles labored, bringing out stones to lay upon the foundation. In his letter to the believers of Ephesians, Paul said, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, talking to the Gentiles, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There is no physical temple involved here. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. The scriptures are incredibly clear on this issue. It boggles the mind how you can pervert it to fit the modern mindset. To the Corinthians he wrote, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. Was Paul building a physical building? Of course not. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I have any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So we must be careful what we build with and how we build this temple. To the Corinthians he wrote, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise builder, I have laid the foundation. So this is the one. Jesus Christ is the foundation. The work of Christ as man's intercessor is presented in Zechariah. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Referring to whom? Referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his father's throne. And he shall be priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall between them both. He shall build the temple of the Lord. By his sacrifice and mediation, Christ is the foundation and builder of the church of God. Reformed position. The chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, quoting ephesians two twenty twenty one He shall bear the glory, the song of the ransomed one will be, unto to him that loved us and washed us from our sins and his blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The issue is Jesus. That is the central point. Will Trump hasten the arrival of the Messiah? This is Newsweek speaking. Jews and evangelicals think so. My brothers out there, my evangelical friends, I would like to challenge you to go back to the Bible, to study the Reformed position and to take your stand either on the Bible or run along with this theology that comes out of a counter-reformation mindset which destroys the entire plan of salvation because can two walk together, lest they agree? Can you believe in Christ as your Savior and be united Religiously speaking Theologically speaking With those who deny him It's impossible And when you look at the Messianic Jews They also have a national deliverer That will come and deliver him It's not the Jesus that The Bible talks about That builds a spiritual house Of those that have been cleansed By the blood of the Lamb It's the same theology As the Jews have Who Deny the divinity of Christ and the role of Jesus Christ. The Messianic Jews who accept Jesus don't accept the Jesus of the Bible. They have the, Bible, the, the Jesus that will be their national deliverer and set up their kingdom. So while Israel held the moment as historic when they set up the consulate in jerusalem muslim and european allies have explicitly denounced the move and of course interesting trump's announcement of moving the u.s embassy to jerusalem is a change from 70 years of u.s policy now the numbers 50 and the number 70 play very important roles in Kabbalistic thinking So whenever these great events take place, they always take place at specific times, specific dates. The Bible has no such thing. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Not on the 70th anniversary or on the 50th, you can give your heart to Christ. No, no, no. It's a today issue. But they always work in these Kabbalistic ways. So riots break out. In the wake of President Donald Trump's controversial decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, some Jewish activists argued that the U.S. president was being guided by God to restore Jewish control over sacred sites. And in fact, the Jerusalem Post says... In broad new doctrine, Trump asserts Israel is not the cause of regional problems. Okay, then who is the cause? Well, as we saw in the beginning, when that Jewish delegation came to the Pope, they weren't against moderate Islam. They were against the jihadists. They were against the extreme view of Islam. So here's an interesting point. So the Jews are not to blame for the problem. Can we find perhaps some Muslim groups who feel the same way? Trump notes that instead of being a primary irritant in the region, Israel has proven itself an asset to moderate Arab governments seeking prosperity and reform. Well, here's an interesting alliance coming. Activists lobbying for the construction of the Jewish temple said Trump was playing a similar role to the Persian emperor Cyrus the Great who allowed the Jews to return to Israel from exile. Jews also praised Cyrus for helping them build a second Jewish temple in the same place where the first had been destroyed. So just like Pope Francis, you have this connection with the United States. There have been amazing advances towards bringing the temple this year. It was clear that Trump was part of that process. Guided by Hashem, God, said Asaf Fried, official spokesman for the United Temple Movement on Association, lobbying for the Third Temple's construction. Advocates for the Third Temple were supportive of Trump even before he recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital on Wednesday. Evangelical Christians who are staunch supporters of Trump believed that a third temple would be built before the end times and that would usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jewish tradition also holds that the third temple will be built during the time of the Messiah. So you have this hodgepodge of ideologies. So is Donald Trump a modern day Cyrus? Is there going to be a third temple? Ever since Donald Trump began to surge as a candidate last year, Christians have been pointing to the book of Isaiah and comparing Trump with the ancient Persian king Cyrus. Some have even claimed that God has revealed to them that he will use Trump for the good of America just as he used Cyrus for the good of the Jewish people, even though Cyrus was a pagan king. Breaking Israel news. Biblical numerology and Torah codes reveal messianic trump Cyrus connection. I find these things fascinating when I read them. So, are we talking Bible here? No. We are talking numerology and we are talking Torah codes. In other words, hidden knowledge. Connections between the U.S. president and Persian King Cyrus, recently strengthened by President Donald Trump's landmark speech acknowledging Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel, have deep roots in Bible codes and biblical numerology which link both men to the coming of the Messiah. So this is Kabbalah, this is Kabbalistic thinking. This is not biblical thinking. The Bible says that every word proceeds out of the mouth of God You read what it says, and what it says is what it means. Simple. Not where do I find hidden codes. The mysterious ties between Trump, Cyrus, and the Messiah are revealed through two, what does it say there? Mystical methods of understanding the Torah. Torah. What does the Bible have to say about that kind of interpretation? Isn't it wizardry? Isn't it something that the Bible rejects? And here they quite blatantly splash it over the news channels that this is their methodology. Amazing. So it's two mystical methods of understanding the Torah. Hebrew numerology, known as gematria, Gives Hebrew letters and words numerical values which uncover hidden meanings while Bible codes search the Torah for secret patterns and connections. This is not how God operates. This is how the enemy of God operates. And quite clearly, they have chosen a wrong path in their interpretation. Here's another breaking Israel news article. Sanhedrin, mint, silver, half-shekel with images of Trump and Cyrus. Now you must think about this because this is a very serious issue. How far along have we moved? You see, there's a counter-reformation theology that an antichrist will come in the future. This was... To be a lightning conductor to take away the heat from what the Protestants had said was the real issue. Because Protestantism pointed to Rome and said that was the seat of the Antichrist. And the papacy could not afford that. And so this theology was developed to take away this indictment and to throw it into the future where Christians wouldn't even have to be concerned about it because they would have been raptured away by the time it happens. So for a Christian to pray, thy kingdom come, is actually a useless endeavor because they will be gone before it happens here on earth and they will be grass widows up there while they wait for a thousand years to be reunited with Christ. It's a, it is a non-biblical, nonsensical theology but it is the theology of the day so we have to live with it we have to expose it for what it is so what is this business about the half shekel in gratitude to the United States President Donald Trump for recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Jerusalem the nascent sadhedrin And the temple center are minting a replica of the silver half shekel biblically mandated to be donated by every Jewish male to the temple. And the quote here, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel, when they give the offering of Hashem to make atonement for their souls. Exodus 30, verse 15. Okay, so that's what it looks like. And it's been minted. Now, let's think about that theology. This half shekel was redemption money. And every eligible Jewish boy who reached a certain age had to pay the half shekel. Whether you were rich or whether you were poor made no difference. It was called redemption money. So the redemption cost you a half shekel but it was free redemption was free when Peter was confronted by the Jews whether they had all paid their temple dues Jesus sent Peter to go fishing and he caught a fish and he found enough money for how many for himself and for Jesus so in other words, God actually provides it and makes sure that you can get it. But even more interesting, when that first half shekel was gathered by the Jewish people, they took those silver coins and melted them down in order to create the the base of the pillars of the sanctuary. And they were on silver. So the the base of the pillar and the pillar stands for humanity. Because the Bible says if you overcome, it will make you a pillar in the house. It stands for the redeemed stand on a foundation of the half shekels melted down, the redemption money. It's a symbol of Christ who has cleansed us from our impurity just as silver is purified. So there's a big theology involved in the half shekel. And you mean to tell me that this redemption here is a physical redemption which totally bypasses the atonement and the price paid by the Messiah and the acceptance of the gift of salvation. So we have moved far along. So the half shekel coin bears the profile of Cyrus and Trump. Not only that, a new high-speed train will be necessary for the third temple. Uh, Fish writes, uh, and Kabbalah blog. All right? Very interesting. In Hebrew, called such and such, the secret energy, related an anecdote in his blog on Thursday about... Rabbi Yahshua Deskin, a leading rabbi in Jerusalem in the late 19th century, fish related that Rabbi Deskin heard the whistle of the first train to arrive in Jerusalem in in 1892 and said they are clearing the way for Messiah, Messiah, and the Gula, redemption, is on the way. Redemption is on the way. Redemption in a public forum and not redemption of the heart. This is all from breaking Israel news. The Los Angeles Times shows the mayor putting up the signpost that the embassy had moved to Jerusalem. And he said, nothing is free, and the opening of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem will come at a price, and it is worth paying it. We should be prepared for this price. So they put up the sign in English and Arabic and Hebrew. This is not a dream. It's a reality. We're moving in that direction. The Los Angeles Times has an interesting statement where it says, the official reason embassies accredited to Israel are not located in Jerusalem is an esoteric construct. Do you find that interesting? Called corpus separatum, a Latin term meaning separated body." devised by the United Nations officials in the night 1947 as they scrambled to find an internationally acceptable status for the Holy City when the British mandate in Palestine came to an end and it was divided into an Arab state and a Jewish state. It's fascinating that they wait exactly those 70 years for that cycle to then implement What the counterfeit theology regarding the Antichrist and redemption is all about. And Christians and Jews join hands in celebrating a Jesuit doctrine. Fascinating, while all this is happening, there were major military moves afoot. And uh, 350,000 Saudi Arabia soldiers maneuver preparing for a Syria war. According to the official announcement, forces are being contributed by Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, Sudan, Kuwait, Morocco, Pakistan, Tunisia, Oman, Qatar, Malaysia, and several other nations. The exercise will reportedly last for 18 days, and during that time the airspace over northern Saudi Arabia will be closed to air traffic, etc., etc., etc. What I find interesting is that these exercises are not exercises aimed against Israel. They are exercises aimed at Islam, at radical Islam. So is there perhaps a move to lighten the problem over there? Well here's an interesting web page. It's Godsholymountain.org and here is a fascinating constructed painting which shows the dome of the rock on the one side and the newly constructed temple on the other side. And it's interesting to read what this painting is all about. You have people coming in through the Golden Gate, which is here open. And they're moving to the Temple Mount. And you have these people here in the middle. You have a stream of Muslims on that side. And you have a streams of Jews on this side. And you have Messianic Jews. And you have the whole mixture together. Jews equate Iman Mahdi with Messiah. A place of worship for all people, Muslims and Jews, in discussion to build the temple next to the Dome of the Rock. The following is a picture on this website. So let's have a look at it. It is a normal future day on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jews, Muslims and Christians entering through the Gate of Mercy, that's the Golden Gate, that's pricked up at the moment, are waiting for services to begin. Respectively at the temple, at the Dome of the Rock and at the Al-Aqsa Mosque And at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre Friends of all three religions and from around the world greet each other And some gather around an informal group of musicians There they are in the middle Uh, From the three faiths who are playing together The Temple Mount has shed the remnants of destruction and conflict left by the Roman Empire And is once again, is a joyous place in which all worship in their respective holy buildings, but bearing witness to the same one God, creator of all. So, is all this conflict a Hegelian dialectic to bring people together? Which, of course, is another way in which the Jesuits operate. Jews are shown entering the gate of mercy and turning left towards the temple. Muslims are shown turning right from the gate of mercy towards the dome of the rock there they are over there while some Muslims are shown passing by the dome of the rock on the way to the Al-Aqsa mosque Christians are shown coming from the right side of the painting towards the church of the holy sepulchre and towards the garden tomb which as noted above is shown here in an anomalous position so they've they move things around a little, but for the sake of their theology, let's get this thing right. However, some Christians enter the Temple Mount through the Gate of Mercy. Some Jews, Muslims, Christians, and others as well as divert from their groups, walking towards their respective shrines to mix with friends of different faiths and in various informal clusters scattered through the Temple Mount. One of these mixed clusters of people is shown in the foreground gathered around a group of musicians. So they're making some music together. The musicians shown consist of left to right standing, a Christian playing a tambourine, a Jew playing a violin, a Muslim playing a trumpet and sitting, a Jew playing a harp, a Muslim playing a qanun, a traditional Arabic instrument. The 13, please note the numerology again, The 13 people gathered around the musician are meant to represent a mixture of Jews, Muslims and Christians and others from around the world, as are the six, note the numerology, children dancing to the right. The number 13 is the numerical value of the word one. In Hebrew, thus symbolizing their unity. And with the musicians, they add up to 18, which is the numerical value of the word chi in Hebrew, which means living or life. So, where do we get life? Not in Christ, but in this unity. Around what? Interesting. Among the buildings shown in the skyline of Jerusalem in anomalous locations, in other words, not where they should be, you have the Supreme Court of Israel, the Hebrew University, the Mount Scopus, the building of technology, etc., etc. Well, is that a realistic thought? Well, if you ask the papacy, then it certainly is. Because after all, the Pope calls for all religions to unite. And he wants them all Worshipping the same God One that excludes The Jesus Christ of the Bible And the redemptive process So Twelve times Pope Francis Has openly promoted A one world religion Or a new world order This comes from charisma news Shows how confused these poor people are On the one hand They are celebrating the unity between The Jewish religion and And Christianity and the furthering of the state of Israel in a redemptive uh, fashion. And on the other hand, they're wondering, why is he asking for a one-world religion and a new world order? And the question that many have, is Donald Trump going to be the savior from this uh, one-world unity, or is he really part of it? It appears to some in the Hegelian dialectic that he might be against that sort of idea, but when I look at the way in which his family visited the papacy, then I'm afraid that uh, there is no difference in terms of allegiance to the papacy between him or any other previous president of the United States. This system is so well entrenched. And this plan, this counter-Bible, counter-Reformation plan is so well established that nothing is allowed to stand in its way. And it's important to note that if the coming of Christ is to take place, literally, in the near future, then the counterfeit... Must happen before that. No point bringing in the counterfeit after the real event. It's too late. So, are we seeing the counterfeit being put in place? Does this tell us where we are standing in the stream of time? Interreligious Studies A New Vision for God's Holy Mountain by Or Margalit. So he's saying, you know, we should not be so diverse. We should have this unity. What is all this fighting about? What is all this haggling about? We must get to a point. The very process of raising a new structure on what is regarded as a holy site undermines the sanctity and peace of the area during the time of building. Not to mention the socio-political uproar. We're going to have problems. Isn't it a the form of idolatry, us, when we? take the place is so important on the other hand you have focus on jerusalem and they're talking about the mount of olives on the east side and the old city and the golden eastern gate the bible indicates that jesus passed through this gate many times while he was in jerusalem jewish religious tradition teaches that the coming messiah will enter jerusalem through this gate And the Muslim tradition teaches exactly the same thing. So outside this gate, you have all the graves of the prominent Muslims over time who believe that when the Messiah comes, the Imam Mahdi, he will open that gate and they will be resurrected and be the first to go in with him. So both religions teach the same thing. To prevent this, the Muslims sealed the gate during the rule of Suleiman. Visitors to the Mount of Olives stand on holy ground. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ stood on this hillside, overlooking the old city, making prophecies that would change the world. According to the Jewish tradition, the Messiah will come through the golden gate or the gate of mercy of the old city and bring about the resurrection of the dead and the cemetery on the mount. And as I said, exactly the same is believed by the Muslims. There is the golden gate, bricked up during the time of Solomon, And these bricks will apparently miraculously fall away. And the Messiah will enter. Whether you're a Jew or whether a Muslim, it doesn't really matter, it seems. And they quote Ezekiel. And it says in uh, chapter 44, verses 1 to 3, Then he brought me back. The way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which overlooketh towards the east, and it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered in by it. Therefore it shall be shut. It is for the prince, the prince. Now they are applying this to a physical temple, and a physical temple mount whereas the Bible speaks about the spiritual temple and a coming of Christ from the east, not to enter into some physical temple. Here we have an article in Israel today of a Muslim looking forward to the third temple. So you have this interesting new development that they're going to perhaps have a temple side by side, what does he say He's a prominent Muslim leader from Turkey And he welcomed the delegation of rabbis And politicians from Israel For dinner And uh, who was there Rabbi Dov Lipman Top officer from the World Zionist Organization Was amongst those attending the dinner Along with many Muslims Jews and Christian representatives And uh, Lipman noted That he was very pleased With the friendship and goodwill blessings He received in Turkey And the previous negative image about Turkey in his mind has completely changed. Why? Talmud's temple will be built in an atmosphere of global peace and tranquility at hand. Rabbi Ben Abramson, who is a historian and consultant of the Sunhedrin regarding issues related to Islam, emphasized that the rebuilding of the temple is a very good development for all mankind. Jews and Christians share many common values and the current opposition was a ploy of Satan. He said people of reason who are full of love should come together and encourage peace and love. Full of love. People full of love. Pope Francis issues blueprint for geopolitical stability. Here he is with all his men from all over the world All the industrial and political leaders backing him up, all dressed in black. Speaking to the ambassadors of the 183 countries with the Holy See as relations, the Pope made an indirect criticism of Trump's policy on Jerusalem, which the president recently decided would be recognized as the capital of Israel. This move ran roughshod over the United Nations resolutions on the matter, And Francis stresses that the city is sacred to Christians, Jews, and Muslims. So they're using an interesting dialectic. Actually, what he's saying, I don't have a problem with the building as long as it incorporates Jews, Muslims, and Christians in an alliance, which excludes Jesus Christ, of course. So the Sanhedrin appoints a high priest in preparation for the third temple. We're moving very rapidly. Breaking Israel news. Rabbi Kohani was reluctant to discuss the Sanhedrin's decision. This may not be the time to choose Kohen Kadol. There are no sacrifices required. He said to breaking Israel news. However, he added, that could change overnight. In any case, it is clear that we need to be prepared to prepare the priests to have everything ready. When asked how long it would take to begin sacrifices if it suddenly became permissible, he considered carefully before answering, if the government decided to permit it, it would only take a few weeks to make preparations even to do the Yom Kippur service. I think we are very close to the point where the counterfeit will be set up In order to deceive Christianity by keeping its focus on Israel. Rather than the issues revolving redemption. And the issue of the centrality of Jesus Christ in the plan of salvation. In Luke 13.35 Jesus said. Behold your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. According to the scripture, it will remain desolate until he comes. Not to walk through some golden gate, but to come in the clouds of heaven, and when the dead shall be raised, and together with the living that believe in him, will be taken to meet him in the clouds Matthew 24 verse 2 and Jesus said unto them see ye not all these things verily I say unto you there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down is there any hint of a rebuilding of a temple there absolutely not the system has come to an end that's what he said not one stone upon the other John 3 verse 12 if I have told you earthly things and you believe not how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things they are looking at earthly things the true gospel deals with heavenly things it deals with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ this theology in the world out there is a false theology that is duping millions into looking for something that will never be permitted here's another Adventist quote it comes from early writings and I was pointed to some who are in the great era of believing that it is their duty to go to old Jerusalem and think that they have a work to do there before the Lord comes no 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 you don't have to go to Jerusalem to find your salvation You can find your salvation in your closet as you develop a relationship with Jesus Christ and where you allow him to change you. You don't have to be associated with Jerusalem. That's not the reformed position and that's not the biblical position. I also saw that old Jerusalem never would be built up and that Satan was doing his utmost to lead the minds of the children of the Lord into these things now. In the gathering time, to keep them from throwing their whole interest into the present work of the Lord and to cause them to neglect the necessary preparation for the day of the Lord. These things are a distraction. God's people should not be looking at the news to see what the events are that will transpire in the culmination of a Jesuit ideology. They should be studying their Bible. They should be returning to the Protestant roots. One Peter five verse eight says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour." And Matthew twenty four verse twenty four says, "For there shall arise false Christs, false prophets; they shall grow show great signs and wonders, insomuch as if it were possible, they will deceive the very." elect. If the building of the third temple is on the table, if the coins have been minted, if the priests have been appointed, if the heifers have been bred, if the candlestick has been moved, then surely the agenda, the counterfeit, counter reformation agenda is extremely far advanced. What does that mean for God's people? Shouldn't we be studying the word? Shouldn't we be readying our hearts for the real events that will take place soon? And should we be allowed to be duped? To take our focus off what the reformers said the problem was? And how does Rome and its counter-reformation negate the gospel of Jesus Christ? We will have to look at that in future lectures, which will be part of the series. May God help us to understand the issue. Because it is a life and death issue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is a great counterfeit religious system that is being erected in the world. And you are directing us back to your word and to a plain, thus saith the Lord. Not hidden in codes and mysticism and numerology and hidden agendas but plainly expounding the plan of salvation. Help us to be studiers of the Word and not studiers of mysticism, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.